The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, we rejoice in Jesus, the victorious Passover lamb, whose blood protects us from your curse, whose blood takes away our guilt, and whose resurrection life welcomes us into your presence. Father, as we meditate for a few moments again on the word of good news and on the calling of grace to bear one another's burdens, uh, particularly when we are caught in sin, when a brother or a sister is caught in sin, how do we respond in grace? That's our, our question that you answer for us through your servant, the Apostle Paul, through your word. Uh, so speak to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 5 is our text today, but we need to hear it as it flows out of the end of chapter 5. So we're going to read beginning at 5.22 and then on through 6.5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And the spirit of gentleness. We'll come back to that. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of God. Burdened with grace, that's the last of our themes. That may seem an odd conclusion to our study of Galatians, which Luther called his Katie von Bora, his beloved wife, the Apostle Paul's Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Others have described it. We've been exploring how God's graceful provision uh, satisfies our spiritual thirst. We looked at some of the symptoms of thirst that uh, are revealed here in Galatians. We've seen that at his mercy, Christ's cross unmasks us. He strips away our respectable facades. And at the same time, he embraces us. He reassures us in love that in spite of what he knows about the ugliness within us, he loves us for the sake of Jesus, the Savior he provided, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We glimpse the goodness of God's gift of his Holy Spirit who transforms us, who sets us free and who irrigates us like fruitful trees, so we bear his fruit. Now here, specifically at the beginning of what we now call chapter 6, Paul is focusing on a specific way in which the fruit of the Spirit is to be manifested 
and it's to be manifested in our bearing burdens for one another, specifically when one of us is caught in a sin. Paul's been emphasizing freedom, a freedom that we enjoy in the grace of God, grounded in what Jesus has accomplished for us, not on our performance. He's already said, chapter 3, that we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith. Though we are heirs, we were nothing. We were treated as though we were slaves until the day when God sent his son to set us free and to bring us into the full rights of sonship. He said, Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand there, firm, therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So we're a bit shocked, maybe, a little surprised when in 5.13, Paul says, use your freedom as slaves to one another in love. And now he makes it very concrete. He says, bear each other's burdens. That's where he draws almost to the close this letter. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then he says, that's verse 2, Verse 5, he says, each one will bear his own load. So that puzzles us a little bit, too. A lot of puzzles here for us to deal with in the next 10 or so minutes. Okay. Okay. Last time, as we were looking at the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, we saw that when Paul identified the works of the flesh that most alarm him, it that did not so much have to do with the illicit indulgence of bodily desires, although they were there, immorality, uh, substance abuse. But at the heart of the list are things of attitude, bitter attitudes, unloving competition that tend to shatter the body of Christ. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, competition, uh, dissensions, factions, envy, symptoms of pride that incline us to bite, as he says, and devour and possibly destroy one another, to be conceited, to provoke and envy each other. All of that toward the end of chapter 5, the works of the flesh. By contrast, he said, the fruit of the Spirit unites us because the Spirit bears this fruit in us. The Holy Spirit is the life source of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness. By the Spirit who gives us life, we are to keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. And now he's talking about what it means to keep in step with the Spirit in a very specific way. When a brother or a sister is caught in any transgression, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, to be kept, to keep in step with the Spirit, to be enslaved to one another in love? Brother or sister is caught, red-handed, violating the law of God. How am I going to respond? Will I ignore a sin? Will I condemn the sinning brother or sister? Will I exult in my spiritual superiority? Or will I, in the face of this crucial opportunity to make myself look good compared to others, will I bear the fruit of the Spirit, which includes gentleness? Well, it all depends on whether I'm spiritual or not, right? But now wait a minute. Paul says here, you who are spiritual, not the spiritual among you, but you who are defined by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is describing all believers. He's describing those whom he calls brothers, brothers and sisters, at the very beginning of this verse, this chapter, 6-1. Brothers, you, the spiritual ones, are to gently 
restore that erring brother or sister. He's not talking about two classes of Christians. The Christian college I went to uh, in ancient times uh, had two categories. We had sort of a two-party system. There were the SGs and the RFs, the spiritual giants and the rat finks. I know that sounds really corny. But the Ratfinks thought that was cool. They were the ones who were there under protest because their parents didn't dare send them to a public university knowing they were going to go off the track spiritually. Uh, They were the ones who pushed the rules, uh, pushed the edges of the rules and broke the rules. Um, Maybe they smoked. We don't know. Maybe they drank. Maybe they danced. And they certainly had no respect for the curfew for the ladies only. You see what a school I went to? Whereas we, the spiritual giants, didn't do any of that bad stuff, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church, the people of God, those whom he calls brothers and sisters, as the spiritual ones. It's not a category of maturity. It's reminding us of our identity. He's just said, if you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. He's just said that the Spirit bears the fruit in our lives that is beautiful, that reflects Jesus. In fact, he's just said the Spirit bears gentleness. And that's actually why I dare to suggest that the ESV's translation here could maybe be improved a little bit instead of that lowercase s spirit. He's really referring to the Holy Spirit. Restore the wounded, the fallen, the guilty, in the spirit of gentleness. So this is really the climax of all he said about God's gift of the spirit. 3.14, we've been redeemed from the curse of the law that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit by faith. In us, 4.6, by the spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. We are children born by the Spirit's power like Isaac, 4.29. We walk by the Spirit, 5.16. We are led by the Spirit, 5.18. We live by the Spirit, 5.25. We keep in step with the Spirit, 5.25. Now he's saying, this is your identity. Christ has given the Holy Spirit to you. So how do you respond? Verse 1, he says, first of all, how you should respond to your erring, sinning, guilty brother or sister who's caught And then he also talks about how we should look at ourselves. And then in verse 2, he unpacks that first point, how we should look at our brother or sister who's caught. And then in verses 3, 4, and 5, about how we look at ourselves. Notice much more about how we look at ourselves than how we help the brother or sister. Uh, I'm going to invert the order and the time we have to focus on two points about how we help a brother or a sister caught in sin and just one point about ourselves. But uh, listen to Paul's balance. We need to look a lot at ourselves. So... What are the two observations about how we view and respond to the caught Christian, the one who is entrapped and perhaps discovered? The word can mean either in Greek, caught in the sense of caught red-handed or ensnared. Um, How do we respond? First, instead of expressing indifference through inaction, we express compassion through restoration. The brother in sin is broken, Damage, needing repair, that's the implication of this verb restore right here. Sometimes it simply means to prepare or equip, but sometimes it really means to repair broken things, like, say, fishing nets. 
Matthew 4.21. Or in the Greek outside the New Testament, it can refer to physicians setting broken bones. That's what Paul's getting at here. Repair, restore, fix what is broken. Now, the brother who's caught red-handed in sin is not a helpless victim. Paul's not claiming that. But he also is saying, and is calling us to restore, he is saying, don't just view him as a criminal lawbreaker, but also view him, in a sense, as one of the walking wounded who needs repair. So the first thing involved in being burdened by grace is simply this. When a brother or a sister is broken by life-ruining sin, what pattern of sin doesn't ruin our lives? When he's broken by life-ruining sin, the spiritual don't do nothing. Grammatically, that sounds horrible, but it's true. We don't do nothing, we do something. We restore, we repair. Love compels us to see this sinner for who he is, a brother. And so Paul begins by calling us brother. He's not simply my rival. He's not simply my enemy. He's not the person who offended me. He is my brother. Because he's my brother, his stumble, his fall, his infection by sin threatens the health of the whole family of God. So I don't do nothing, I do something. Now it's true, as the New Testament says, love covers a multitude of sins. Both Peter and James quote that verse from Proverbs 10:12: hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But it does that in a couple different ways. When, when Peter quotes that verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it does sound as if Peter is saying, because love covers a multitude of sins, don't pick a fight over every sin that your brother or sister has committed. Let the little stuff go from time to time. If it's not a pattern, if it's not grave. James, on the other hand, when he quotes that verse, He's talking about turning a sinner from his way. He's talking about being proactive. And that obviously was Paul, what Paul has in mind here. And it's not always easy to tell when I should speak and when I shouldn't. Partly depends on whether the evidence is clear and firsthand or hearsay, secondhand. Whether the behavior of the believer who is caught in sin is clearly a violation of God's word or if it's one possible, permissible application of God's word, whether I personally have the credibility to go to them. There are a lot of factors there. Um, But Paul says, my instinct should be in love, in gentleness, to restore, not simply to turn a blind eye, not simply to be conflict-averse. Some of us are conflict-averse, right? But not simply to do that, but to go in in love. As he says, uh, unpacking that in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In that context, I mean, there are all kinds of burdens that we could be bearing for one another, but Paul, in this context, says his sin, his guilt, what is, what is mired him down and broken him is a burden that you need to help pull off his back, otherwise it will crush him. It will crush him. So, don't do nothing, Right? Instead of simply being indifferent and aloof, intervene in compassion. And you do it with, as Paul says, the spirit of gentleness. Not self-righteous judgmentalism, but gentleness. That's why I think really the spirit is a better translation here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit enabling us to be gentle 
especially maybe when the sin that my brother's caught in, I've been the target of. I've been the victim in a certain sense. I need the spirit, the Holy Spirit of gentleness. Why do I need gentleness? Why not boldness? Why not justice? Why not truth? Well, I need all those things. But Paul says gentleness here because, well, my hunch is several reasons. For one thing, if I approach my brother with gentleness, it enables me to make sure I have the facts straight, right? That I'm actually perceiving things correctly. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. I need to make sure I understand what's going on here first. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Man's wrath does not accomplish God's justice. I go with gentleness because I want to make sure I understand things correctly. I go with gentleness because gentleness lowers my brother's self-justifying defenses against God's light. If I go in with guns blazing, he will easily blame my attitude and excuse himself for not really dealing with things. Again, the wisdom of Proverbs 15.1, a gentle word turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Gentleness shows my brother that I'm approaching him not because I want to hurt him or exult over him, but because I want to help him. And gentleness exemplifies the humility before the Lord's majesty that my brother really needs at this point. And probably best of all, gentleness makes me a little bit of a reflection by the Spirit's work of Jesus of Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart and does not break off the bruised reed or quench the flickering wick. My brother needs to see a reflection of the servant of the Lord foretold in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord who does not quarrel or cry out or break the bruised reed or snuff the smoldering wick. So gentleness restores and repairs rather than making the damage worse. But as I said... Paul says actually more about how we should view ourselves in this whole process. The end of verse 1, and then again verses 3, 4, and 5. And here, because our time is so limited, I I can simply say, instead of congratulating yourself in self-deceiving smugness, you need to examine yourself in realistic humility. Paul says in 6.1b, watch yourself lest you too be tempted. Keep an eye on yourself. Paul issued the same warning against self, smug self-confidence in 1 Corinthians 10.12. The person who thinks he's standing firm must watch out lest he fall. Trickery, the tricky enemy who has ensnared your sinning brother or sister is out to get you too. Watch it. Watch yourself. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, Paul says in verse 3, he's deceiving himself. Now that's a word that only appears here in the Greek New Testament. The great 19th century New Testament scholar J.B. Lightfoot suggests that this word, when when it appears elsewhere in Hellenistic Greek, has to do with living in a fantasy world. Not just lying to yourself, but living in an unreal world. Out of touch with reality. Paul says, when you see a brother in sin, be careful lest you live in a fantasy world thinking that you are impervious to sin, immune to sin. For, as he says, verses 4 
and 5. Let each test his own work, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for each will bear his own load. Those future tenses, most Greek scholars agree, those are significant. Those are, those are pointing us forward, actually, to the last judgment. Uh, they're talking about the end of history. Paul's describing here in a very concise way the final day in court that he describes in 2, Timothy 5, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or worthless. Before that judgment seat, Paul says, nobody's going to be sneaking a sidelong glance at the person standing next to him saying, hmm, better than they are. No, no, no. Paul says, uh, the, the only boasting you might have is boasting over yourself. Now, that's a very puzzling, puzzling expression. But certainly he has in view, you're not going to boast over any of your brothers or sisters. Maybe he's being partly ironic. But to whatever extent he's being serious here, he's saying, at that moment... You may look back and see that the Holy Spirit has really done some work in you. Now, we're not talking about a second verdict of justification at the end of history. I know that's a huge controversy. No. Justification, God's declaration that we are right in his sight on the strength of Christ's blood and righteousness received by faith alone once and for all. But Paul is, I think, suggesting here that really... The blood and righteousness of Christ is, are, really the double cure from sin's guilt and sin's power. And that at that day, we will be able to look back and say, I'm here, I'm justified only on the strength of Jesus' blood and righteousness. And this Savior who slow loved me and gave himself for me has begun a good work in me, which he's now brought to completion. That there is some progress here. I think that makes best sense of the fact that the la- Paul's last word on boasting in this book is not about us, where we were, where we are, where we were in comparison to somebody else. The last word on boasting is about the cross. A few verses later, 614. But may it never be. Far be it from me that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul says, I died on the cross. That's back in 2.20. I was crucified with Christ. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Apart from Jesus, I'm nothing. But in Jesus, God has made me the righteousness of God by his imputed righteousness, and the Holy Spirit has been at work to bear his beautiful fruit. As we boast in the cross and cling to the cross and rely on our crucified and risen Savior, both our judgmentalism toward those who are struggling with sin, maybe more visibly than we are, and our aloof indifference to their struggles have to die to be replaced by gentleness and by compassion. The Christ who freed us from the yoke of the law has put his yoke on us, so we fulfill the law of Christ. He calls us to bear his burden of love for his struggling children. Only he could bear it to the cross, but he calls us to bear one another's burdens. And with that yoke, Jesus promises the strength of his spirit. He does it 
in quiet ways, but he certainly does it in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Calling for brothers and sisters, caring for brothers and sisters in Christ when they're struggling is a heavy load. Whoever said that motto, he ain't heavy, he's my brother, didn't know a thing. No, brothers and sisters are heavy loads if we really care for them. And frankly, we are to them too. But Jesus calls us to bear his yoke, and he carries us to the end. So we're burdened by grace, and gladly so. We're free slaves, slaves of love to one another, because Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your beloved Son did not turn a blind eye to our sin and our guilt and our brokenness and our ensnarement in sin, but in compassion he came. Anointed by the spirit of gentleness, he came and laid down his life for us. He bore our burden of guilt and sin and enslavement to the cross. So we bear it no more. And Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living, risen Christ, is at work in us to conform us to his image. Father, we know that is a calling that you give to us together, not as isolated individuals, not as hermits, but as your people, members of one another, brothers and sisters. So, Father, teach us to bear this glad burden of Christ, to fulfill the law of Christ in the strength of the spirit of gentleness for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.